It's my privilege to read one of my favourite passages this morning from 1 Peter chapter 2. And I'm reading from the New International Version. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. My favourite verses. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And why? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's word. Thank you, Nigel. You really did that reading justice. (laughs) Well, good morning, friends. What a wonderful time of worship we've had this morning. God is here with us, and we now open his word, uh, and he will speak to us through his word. Holy Spirit, come, illuminate your word to our hearts, and may we receive what you have for us this morning, that we may be more fully your people in your world. Amen. Well, if you're joining us for the first time this morning, we are in a series looking at the letter of 1 Peter, and we've squared away one chapter. So just really quickly, if you're joining us for the first time, just to bring you right up to speed with where we're at at the moment, 1 Peter is a beautiful letter written by the Apostle Peter, the same Peter that denied our Lord three times. And you might remember in John chapter 21, when Jesus reinstates Peter three times, Jesus asks, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And on each occasion, Jesus um, affirms or commands Peter, um, reinstates Peter, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And and here, this letter is a, a, a beautiful example of Peter responding to that call on his life of Jesus to feed his sheep. And this morning, as we open this letter, in a sense, Peter is continuing to be obedient to that call on his life, 
Because here we are being taught by the very word of Peter feeding his sheep. And we, the scripture likens us as sheep. And here we are being fed on these very words of God, authored by Peter himself. It's an awesome thing. So Peter is writing to what he refers to the Christians who are scattered as exiles, those who have scattered because of persecution. They have fled uh, difficult times. They're now spread and scattered over what is uh, Asia Minor, what is now modern-day Turkey. And, uh, and, and Peter just wants to encourage these believers. He wants to remind them of who they are in Christ. They've been reborn. They are new people. And as such, they are to live differently. They are to live lives of light in the darkness. And Peter reminds them that uh, uh, since they've been reborn, they have um, an inheritance, a heavenly inheritance, their salvation that nothing can take away. He wants them to stay focused on that. He's reminded them of the grace uh, that came with Jesus' first coming. He's reminded them of the grace that is to come in Jesus' second coming. And you remember last week we spoke about those three grace-fueled exhortations. Firstly, to be holy, to be like God, to be set apart. And to be holy is to be set apart for God's glory and God's purpose. He reminds his readers that they have been set apart for God's glory and God's purpose. He then calls them to reverence God as Father. Yes, He is your Father, but He is also your judge in whom one day you will stand and give an account for. And, and then thirdly, He encourages or exhorts them to love deeply, to be real, as Sarah was saying this morning, to take off the masks, to love without hypocrisy, to love deeply from the heart, to go over and above. And this is the command that Jesus gave His disciples, that they would love one another so that the world may see that we are his. So that's kind of a summary of 1 Peter chapter 1. We arrive today at the very beginning of 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's just walk through it. 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 to 3, therefore rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. The first thing to note is that word, therefore. So just as I've mentioned a couple of times now, this is a letter and there was a continual line of thought. It's the beauty in reading through the entire letter in one sitting. You really get a greater feel for all of the themes that run through this letter. So what Peter is referring to in in this moment is he's going to list some vices that he wants them to get rid of. Um, But he does that in the light of what he's just spoken about. Remember, right at the end of chapter 1, Peter talks about loving each other deeply. He's very concerned for the community and how the community is seen, the community of faith. Christians are called to love each other. Our love for one another should be so distinct that people look at us and the way we care for one another and go out of our way for one another, that they see that there's something different. And so in the light of how you're to love your brothers and sisters, therefore get rid of all of these vices which have to do with community. Now malice is kind of the root, and malice is like an evil intent that can grow in your heart. And it is kind of the, I guess all of these other things, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, are the fruit of malice. So the first thing to rid yourself of is like literally cast it aside. 
Put it to death. Throw it in the garbage bin. You've been reborn. You have new life. These are no longer the clothes that you wear. Get rid of them. And the first one is malice. If you get rid of that and if you deal with the heart, then we've dealt with the root cause. But think about deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. There are plenty of lists of vices in the New Testament that oftentimes Paul urges his readers to get rid of. They don't belong to you anymore. You are a new creation in Christ. Um, This is not an exhaustive list, but this is a very specific list to community because Peter is deeply concerned for the community and how the community love one another. And all of these vices disrupt unity. They disrupt and destroy relationship. And they are the opposite of what it is to love authentically. You think about hypocrisy. He's just told them to throw that off. So I want you to get rid of this. I want you to get rid of this kind of behavior that disrupts and disunifies the community. Now, oftentimes, particularly in the case of Paul's writings, he will kind of give two lists. So in a sense, it's like, this is what you throw out. This is the old attire, the old self that you are to put in the garbage. And these are the new virtues, if you like, that you are to put on. Now, Peter doesn't do that here. He does something different. He wants us, instead of having all of those, get rid of that. And what I want you to do now is I want you like a newborn infant. I want you to crave the Word of God. I want you to hunger for the Word of God. And as you hunger and as you receive the Word of God, you're going to grow up into your salvation. Now, everyone in this room here has, you know, knows what it is for a baby to be fed. I'm sure we've all had experiences of it. When a baby is first born... There's only a few things that they do. (laughs) And this is one of them. And and when they're not doing this, oftentimes they'll be screaming because that's what they want. And, And what Peter is doing, he's planting an image in the mind of his readers that they can immediately connect with and understand. Now, he is also continuing on the language of new birth. You know, he said to these believers, you've been born again. You have new life. You're infants in that respect. And what do infants do? They crave milk. And so you as believers, now he's not really referring to them necessarily as infant believers, unlike the Apostle Paul, who will kind of almost scold them for continuing to drink milk when they should be eating meat. Peter's, Peter here is not, it's not a negative sense at all. It's, it's an image that he wants his readers to grab a hold of to the importance and the centrality of the word of God in the life of the believer. And this really, I guess, for us as modern believers, now, Peter's readers didn't have one of these like you and I do. You know, for them, how they kind of received the word of God was in a different context. Um, it was through the elders of the church, and Peter will address the elders in chapter 5. Um, but I think for us as modern day listeners who have the word of God at our everyday disposal in all kinds of devices now, we're v- virtually never without the word of God. It causes us to reflect on what is our relationship 
with the word of God. Do we crave the word of God as an infant craves his or her mother's milk? It's a powerful image. The word of God, my brothers and sisters, is, is, is the first ingredient that we need to grow up. Now, of course, it's not just about receiving the word of God for knowledge's sake. We need to then allow the Holy Spirit to work in and on us and allow us to live out our faith as instructed by the word of God. But it begins with having an understanding that just as I eat several meals a day, be they, you know, the three breakfast, lunch and dinner, be it a snack, whatever it may be, to live and to sustain and to grow, I need to keep feeding myself. And so as believers, the reflection for us is, how is my diet of the Bible going? Now, only you can answer that question. Um, But I just encourage you as we journey through this book of Peter, if we're to grow up into our salvation, if we're to grow into the kind of people that God calls us to be, we need to have a really healthy diet of God's Word. Now, the first, uh, in, the, those first three verses, Peter is addressing the individual. He's speaking to individuals. You know, as individuals, you've got to get rid of this, this old clothing, these old vices. They no longer belong to you, and that's going to disrupt the unity of, of the community. And then he speaks to individuals about their relationship with the Word of God. You've, you've tasted how good the Lord is. You've given your lives to Him. Continue to feed on that Word. Now in verse 4, there's a shift because now he's speaking to the whole community. He's no longer speaking to individuals. He's speaking to all the people of God and their collective identity. As you come to Him, this is no longer singular, this is plural, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to Him, you also like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What Peter is now going to do is he's going to quote in succession three um, verses from the Old Testament. You'll see, uh, and what he's doing, all three of these verses all had uh, a messianic prophetic tone. They're all pointing to the Messiah. What Peter is now doing is he is gathering those verses from the Old Testament and and aligning them squarely with the person of Jesus Christ. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. That's from Isaiah. And then he takes from the Psalms. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And from Isaiah, and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. In these verses, Peter's speaking a lot about stones. And uh, my first thought about this was, isn't it fascinating? Peter, the rock. (laughs) Remember, Jesus gave him that name. He changed his name. And here he is talking about stones. There's a lot of, I think this is very personal for Peter as he's writing. 
Um, the first thing is he talks about Jesus as the living stone. Now, when you think about stones, they're not very alive. <laughs> stones in my, in my mind are, are dead. They don't do anything. They don't really grow. Um, but what, what Peter is referring to here is Jesus is the cornerstone. This is a picture of perhaps more of a, um, a cornerstone that we might tend to think of. And the cornerstone was a, not in... Cornerstones are very different today than what they were um, in ancient history. When, G, when Peter is writing about this, the cornerstone of the building was a large stone and it was critical uh, for the whole building. In fact, the orientation and the direction of the building rested squarely on the cornerstone. And I think what Peter is alluding to here is that the orientation and the direction of the church, of which Peter is now speaking, is to take its cue from its Lord, Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone. Jesus is not dead. He is alive and his church is living. So this is the living stone that Peter is referring to, Jesus as the living stone. But we, as the followers of Jesus, have the spirit of Jesus living within us. And so we, too, are living stones. Now, these stones, in Peter's language, are used to make up a, um, sorry, a temple. I've, um, I've just run ahead of myself. This is just going to happen from time to time. That's okay. What I was going to say there is that I really like the fact that Peter speaks about stones and not bricks. You know, he could have spoken about bricks, but he uses stones. You know, what's, what's nice about stones is every stone is different and it's individual. And the idea there is that the body of Christ is made up not of, of, of copy, carbon, cut, you know, Christians, that every Christian is different, and that's okay. In fact, that's beautiful. That's the tapestry of the family of God. And so, you know, part of the challenge of living in community is getting along with people who are different from us. You know, we kind of wish, every, sometimes we wish everyone would be like us, right? But this is how we'd look. <laughs> and that's not the vision that God has for his church. So that's, that's the point there. The other point is around the stumbling block. To those who accept Christ as their Lord and Saviour, you know, Jesus is our cornerstone. We build our lives on him. He is our foundation. We orientate and direct ourselves through him. However, again, Peter's placing an image in his readers' minds here that is very easy to understand. You imagine you're walking up a flight of stairs and you happen to trip over a stone. Your, your thoughts towards that stone are not going to be positive ones. You're going to kick that stone away. It's a stumbling block. And the idea here is that, you know, Jesus doesn't sit in the middle. You're either for him or you're against him. Um, and Jesus is going to make all the difference in your life if you live your life for him. But if you don't put your trust in Jesus, if he is not Lord of your life, you're going to find the teachings of Jesus downright offensive you're going to find the, the Christian life offensive and you're going to do everything you can to have nothing to do with it. And don't we see that in our world? You know, and it's, it's perplexing for us as believers, isn't it? Isn't it perplexing when you've tasted how good the Lord is and we have this beautiful time of worship that moves me to tears? And I think to myself, how do people get through this world without God? He is my life. 
I love him. My life is so filled with richness because of knowing the Lord. I, I see you nodding your head. But unfortunately for those who don't know the Lord and have rejected the Lord, then we are an offence and Christ is an offence. He's a stumbling block. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.23, that we preach Christ crucified. This is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. And isn't that our experience, men and women of God? Oftentimes when we share the hope that we have, we're met with looks of perplex and, and, you know, this sense of you're foolish. Why on earth would you believe that? So Christ is one or the other. He's the cornerstone that you build your life upon or is the stumbling block which you're going to fall over. And when Peter goes on to speak of the spiritual house, he's he's referencing initially the temple. And the temple in the Old Testament building, of course, was a static building. To experience the presence of God, you had to go to the physical temple itself. And sacrifices needed to be offered on your behalf by a priest. So that's kind of the context. But Peter is now saying that you, the living stones, are in fact being built into a spiritual temple. And this spiritual temple looks incredibly different. Some things we need to understand about Old Testament priesthood that will help us understand this passage even more. Um, To be a priest in the Old Testament, firstly, you had to come from the bloodline of Aaron, the brother of Moses, the first priest in the Old Testament. Every single priest from there on had some connection to that original family line. Now, priests in the Old Testament acted as mediators on behalf of the people towards God. And they would mediate by offering sacrifices, animal sacrifices, on behalf of the people so that the people could be cleansed. The, the, priest, the position of priest was an incredibly privileged position because this person had direct access to God. Like nobody had access to God other than the priest. They had to go through the priest who was the mediator. And so even um, amongst pagans, as well, of course, amongst uh, believers and, and Jews, the priest was uh, a highly regarded person within the community because of the privilege that they had. And this is one of the... this uh, Priest and king are the two highest statuses in Judaism. So it's an incredibly high position, a position of great power, uh, a position of great privilege. Now, Peter is now referring to these New Testament believers as royal priests. Now, for these people, this is kind of a a blow-your-mind-type moment... Because what Peter is effectively saying is no longer does there need to be that, um, that lineage back to Aaron. You're actually now part of God's family. You've been adopted. That's eradicated with. Secondly, there is now direct access. You all have direct access to God. You no longer have to go through a priest. Um, and, so, and, and you have the highest status uh, in, in my economy. You have the highest status because of this particular role. It's a real game changer for these people. And what what Peter is doing here as well is he's speaking identity into their lives and into their situation. These people find themselves in a context where they've been rejected, where they're being persecuted. And they're wondering, 
whether or not God has left them and God abandoned them. And we saw in chapter 1 how Peter says, you are God's chosen, you are God's elect, you've been reborn. Uh, Even the suffering that you're going through is for your own good, you're going to grow through it. But now he's speaking directly to their, as I mentioned earlier, their corporate identity. You are not a forgotten people. You are, in fact, God's chosen people. You are royal priests. You have direct access to God now. And that is the kind of status that you have. Now, as New Testament priests, what are the equivalent or what are the sacrifices that we are to offer? Priests offer sacrifices to God. So what are the sacrifices that we are to offer? Well, the first passage that comes to mind, I'm sure it does for many of you, is Romans 12, 1 to 2. We are to offer up our lives. We are to be living sacrifices, meaning that we offer ourselves. Um, But in fact, and again, remember, this is a letter. So Peter, Peter doesn't leave any stones unturned. As we read through, we see what those sacrifices are that are pleasing to God. And in chapter 4, uh, Peter, in these verses, if you've got the open scriptures, this is where it's really great to be able to just you know, kind of move around as we, as we journey. But in uh, verses 7 to 11 of chapter 4, Peter will speak about prayer, about offering prayer. He will speak about loving one another. He will speak about hospitality and he will speak about using our gifts to serve others. These are the types of sacrifices that we now, as royal priests in God's kingdom, offer to God. And this is what is pleasing to him. Again, it's very community-driven. It's very much about being hospitable, about loving one another, bearing with one another about using our gifts to serve one another. Peter is so concerned about the community, the plural, being good witnesses for God. And I think one of the challenges we find ourselves in is that we live in such an individualistic society. And that absolutely seeps into the church. And I confess to you, my brothers and sisters, that whenever I think about kind of how I'm going with God... I generally think about my own walk with God. How's my quiet times going? Am I in God's word? Am I being faithful in prayer? All of those reflections, and they're certainly necessary, but I I, I generally reflect on how I'm traveling. But that's actually not what Peter says. it's It's like the whole body. It's like the community. And God's concern is how how are you as a community doing? How are you loving one another? How are you actually expressing your love for me by the way that you be hospitable to one another, by praying deeply, caring? So perhaps a good reflection for us is not only to think about how our own personal devotional life and walk with God is going, but to have a real heart and a real concern for the family, for the body of believers. And when we actually start to view our walk with God through that lens, then there will be no such thing as just Sunday attendance. No such thing as Sunday attendance. The Bible knows nothing of a Sunday attending Christian. The Bible only knows of of the community, the body. And the body works together and the body loves one another and the body does life together because the body understands that that is how we now are to view ourselves. God is always concerned for the community The challenge is we live in a world that's all about you. (laughs) It's all about me. It's all about the individual. And that seeps into the church, doesn't it? 
and we become so consumer-driven. It's about my needs rather than what are the needs of the whole family. Uh, And then as the family, as the community really, truly, faithfully lives this stuff out, we actually become a light to our community around us. And what an awesome thing that is. We are created to worship. We then, as Nigel so beautifully read, we have this most beautiful passage of Scripture um, where Peter is taking these profound Old Testament images that describe God's people. And he is now applying them to these scattered, persecuted believers meeting in house churches in Asia Minor. But you, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Again, Peter is speaking identity into these people. This is your identity. This is royal, rich language. And it is difficult for us as modern 21st century believers to really grasp, I think, the weight and the significance of what Peter is saying here. But don't doubt for one second the significance in these verses, in these words that are now being applied to these believers. What Peter is saying is that God's chosen nation, Israel, ultimately was a foreshadow of what you, the church, would become. Remember, the church is made up of Jews and Gentiles. So this once only applied to the Jews, but it now also applies to the Gentiles. Now, you must pardon. uh, So all the terms used to describe Israel are now being applied to the church of Jesus Christ. You must pardon me for this. Um, It's just a little bit of fun because this week a new Star Wars movie was released. But you can see there that Luke Skywalker um, is foreshadowing who he will become, Darth Vader. Uh, So it's a really bad analogy. Um, The church doesn't become something really dark and evil. But, um, But it's just that whole idea that Israel foreshadows the church and that, you know, what was is only going to be something different and even more fulfilled. So what we see in these verses from 1 to 10 is a dual purpose of the church, a dual purpose of the church. And here's where we're going to wrap up. The first is to worship God. In verse 5, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The purpose of the church is to worship God a holy God. And this is something that will always be our purpose. We will always, we've always, right from the very beginning, been made and created to worship God. We will continue to do this right into our next eternal life. Worshiping God will never cease. And the first and the highest priority of every believer, of every church community, is to worship God for He is holy. We're to worship God not because of anything that he has even done for us. We're to worship him purely for who he is. He is awesome. He is our creator. He is our redeemer. Yes, and there's so much that we can celebrate what he's done for us. 
But before we even get to what he's done for us, he just deserves all of our worship simply because of who he is. The first purpose of the church, the enduring purpose of the church, is to worship God. And as we saw just a moment ago, worshiping God is so much bigger than singing songs on a Sunday. As much as the next person, I love to do that. And there's absolute value in gathering together for corporate worship. But how we worship God, biblically speaking, has a lot more to do with how we love one another and how we actually, as a community, function as lights in a dark world. That is true worship. That and how we care for orphans and widows, the work of justice, the work of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. This, my friends, this is hard, but this is what it means to worship. What a full vision of worship that is. And the worship that we offer to God here on Sunday, you know, is really just, it's such a small part, but it's such an important part too, isn't it? Because it fuels us. It, it compels us to come and to see God face to face and be reminded to have that reset, that reset of God, you are front and centre. You are worthy of all of my life. You are worthy of all of my worship. The second purpose of the church is to witness for God. We read in verse 9, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That you would declare. You are all of these things for this reason and this purpose. You are to be witnesses for God. Witnesses for God. The late John Stott wrote this, and it's beautiful. It's out of his book, The Living Church. The church is a people who have been called out of the world to worship God and sent back into the world to witness and serve. These are, in fact, two of the classical marks of the church. According to the first, the church is holy, called out to belong to God and to worship him. According to the second, the church is apostolic and sent into the world on its mission. Every Christian congregation is called to be a worshipping and a witnessing community. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Erin Community Baptist Church, may this be increasingly who we are and who we continue to become in Christ. A people who worship Him as Lord and Saviour, a holy God worthy of all of our praise and our lives and a people who witness to the community at large, both locally, nationally and globally, who this awesome God is, who's rescued us, who's transformed our lives, who's given us new birth. We are now, once we were not a people who had received mercy, now we are a people who have received God's mercy. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the power of your word that continues to speak to our hearts. And Lord, May this not just be a process of continual education, but Lord, we pray that as we continue to deeply study your word, that it would be a process of transformation, that Lord, you would reshape and remould us and realign us to become closely connected to you, to live out your purposes for us as your people and as your church. We acknowledge, Lord, that you are holy. There is none other like you. We know, Lord, that that holiness manifests itself in incredible love 
And so, Lord, we know that the calling on our lives is to be a people of love. Help us to love one another. Help us to love you. And by this, all people will know that we are yours. We give this to you, Lord Jesus. And thank you again that your spirit is with us, that you never leave us or forsake us, that you are with us, you are in us. We are yours and we are for your glory and yours alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, man.